0: Episode 94, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, the techniques and technology.
1: Most of our work is at radio, at optical, and more recently in the infrared. And we're looking for signals that are engineered as opposed to astrophysical. We're looking for the kinds of things that, as far as we know, Mother Nature can't produce.
0: Hello, and welcome to AstroTalk UK. ATUK is a not-for-profit podcast produced by me, Gurbeer Singh, amateur astronomer and writer, based in the UK. I produce this podcast for my own education and share it as a free educational resource with anyone who has an interest. ATUK has no subscribers, ads, and you do not need to log in. For more information, please see the about page at ww.astrotalkuk.org. Dr. Jill Tarter, uh, you have been associated with uh, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence for as long as I've been interested in it. And thank you very much for all the work you've done. Um, so can you just start us off, Jill, with um when did the search extraterrestrial and uh, intelligence SETI begin?
1: Well, the modern era of SETI actually began in 1959 with the publication in Nature of a paper by uh, Kikoni and Morrison, arguing that uh, it would be possible, perhaps, to detect emission from an extraterrestrial technology uh, at the 21-centimeter line within the radio spectrum. Um, At that point, that was the only atom or molecule that we knew about, right? We now have hundreds that we've detected in interstellar space. But back then, 21 centimeters was pretty much it. And they, they did some calculations and indicated that that actually might turn out to be a very good vehicle for communicating information between stars or star systems. And then in 1960, um, independently, Frank Drake had been thinking about the same um, ideas. And he had begun to build a system at uh, Green Bank, West Virginia, uh, the National Radio Astronomy Observatory there. Uh, And it, again, around 21 centimeter line. And he did a search of two stars, Tau Ceti and Epsilon Eridani for about 400 hours in the spring of, of 1960. And that was the first observational program. And since then, we've done lots of radio searching at many observatories around the world. And at the beginning of the century, we we brought in optical astronomy as uh, optical searches as well. And that's basically what we do. We look for techno signatures.
0: So did um, uh, Gikoni, Morrison, and indeed Drake the were early pioneers, did they have difficulty within the scientific community in establishing this new, weird um, approach to looking for something that uh, would have been perhaps not too, sim- not too welcomed by the scientific community at that Yeah,
1: time. it was pretty fringy back then, you know, this <laughs> nonsense of looking for little green men. And I always say <laughs> I'm, I'm perfectly happy with, with big blue women. Um And it it did take a while, and certainly when I got into um, SETI in the mid-70s, as as I was leaving graduate school, I spent a lot of time early on writing papers and holding workshops uh, to establish the credibility of the field. And over time, uh, we are less and less confused with UFOs, and this is being appreciated as a scientific exploration.
0: What are the best um, means of um, detecting signals from extraterrestrial intelligence?
1: Well, we're limited by the technologies that we ourselves have in uh, 2021. right? Mm -hmm. And so most of our work is at radio, at optical, and more recently in the infrared. And we're looking for signals that are engineered as opposed to astrophysical. We're looking for the kinds of things that, as far as we know, Mother Nature can't produce. So it takes an engineer to do this. So in that means in the radio, we're looking for frequency compression. We're looking for very narrow signals that show up in only one channel on the radio dial. And in the optical, we're looking for time compression. Very, very short bursts of, of energy that last only a microsecond, maybe a millisecond. And because, again, you can't do that with nature, but we can do it easily with lasers. So and radio in, know, we have to admit that, that we may be doing an excellent job at exactly the wrong thing. I mean, we may be... Perhaps we should be looking for Zeta rays. And I don't know what a Zeta ray is. We haven't we haven't discovered anything like that yet. But but when new technologies come along, if they make sense, we should incorporate them in the search.
0: And so radio and light. So first of all, radio, that presumably is radio telescopes. And I'm guessing this would be um, the very big telescopes. Um, like uh arecibo um, well
1: don't, we don't have an arecibo anymore
0: lost yeah that. uh and it's very sad because i'm sure you've spent a lot of time there because one of the many projects you were involved with is um i think it was serendip was it initially uh, based that, was, out of that was the
1: original one that i started on right but we spent a lot of time yeah. at arecibo with what we call project phoenix which was rising from the ashes of congressional termination after um this <coughs> Congress terminated NASA's SETI program. We went out and raised funds privately to continue it. And that used Arecibo quite heavily. But we haven't been there since 2004 because we decided to build our own telescope, the Allen Telescope Array in Northern California, so we could be on the sky all the time.
0: So I'll come back to uh, the Allen Telescope Array in a moment. So uh, we all saw those... Um, very high-quality images and videos of Arecibo. Um, how did you feel having such a personal connection with Arecibo at uh, a particular time in your career when Arecibo, Arecibo, I should say, for people who don't know, um, had failures in the cables that supporting the communications towers and it's uh, no more and will be replaced. But how did you feel when you saw that video?
1: Well, we we don't know whether it'll be replaced, and that video was heart wrenching, right? It was um, it was devastating to see that telescope, that grand structure, collapse, fall to the ground, um, and the only thing that you could be thankful for were there were no people around right there at the time, mm-hmm. um, so no one was injured. Whether that telescope will be replaced will depend in um, large measure on the National Science Foundation and NASA and the decadal survey that astronomers in this country are currently uh, undergoing to prioritize what we do next in the next decade or the, the one after that. And Arecibo's demise came at an awkward time because the decadal review had just about wrapped up. And then here we have now a need for a new proposal, which has been written, to replace that telescope with something. For the for the people of Puerto Rico, I mean, every school kid on that island gets a field trip to the telescope. Um, it was one of the real stars in terms of education and uh, really first-rate scientific research. And um, it provided employment for a large number of uh, people from the local area. So it's it's a big hole.
0: So I wasn't aware it was just a proposal. Uh, I'm guessing it's very early stages, but would it be, um, if it was to get the go-ahead, would it be rebuilt at um, Puerto Rico? It
1: would certainly be rebuilt in that um, limestone car sinkhole, right? right? They would right. reuse the infrastructure that's there and the visitor center that's, that's there,
0: yeah.
1: um, it wouldn't be a static, large, spherical dish like the original structure. It would be, in fact, or the proposal is, a number of small dishes mounted on a very large platform that could be tilted and rotated. So it would have more sky coverage than the original dish did. But again, it's very early days, no idea um, whether the community has the appetite for this. There's certainly a lot of us that would like to see it happen, but there are other very worthwhile projects also being proposed.
0: That's interesting. Okay. Um, You mentioned the Allen Telescope, Array. Um, this is uh, something that uh, the SETI community has been working on. Um, or is, it's a uh, instrument designed specifically for SETI search. Uh, it, it's been around for a while now, How, um, and I'm guessing it's still active on a regular basis. What is the state of play in terms of uh, its operational status?
1: Well the telescope was built to do SETI and radio astronomy simultaneously there's it's a what we call a commensal mode of um, operations so with a radio telescope since you measure both the amplitude and the phase of the signal that's arriving at the telescopes you can make essentially a noiseless copy of those data and one set of data can go to the radio astronomers and the other set can be analyzed for engineered signals simultaneously. So we did that. We had hoped to build 350 telescopes when we proposed it and when Mr. Allen gave us a significant amount of funding for it. But we didn't quite realize how much technology, new technologies, we're going to have to develop to build this one-of-a-kind first Um, dish that's made out of a large number of small dishes all arrayed together. And so we actually only got to build 42, right? Which is the number I chose when I couldn't get to 350. Uh, So (laughs) it has been operational since 2007. And actually right now we are refurbishing and improving the feeds and the receivers for all the telescopes. With a, a new design done by um, made by Jack Welch, who designed the first receiver, but this is now a cryogenically cooled receiver with more bandwidth. And so the telescope's off the air right now as it's undergoing this um, refurbishment. We hope it'll be back on the air in a couple of months with a better system temperature, more sensitivity, and uh, more bandwidth. So,
0: I'm guessing this also be an equal advance in the software, um, the, hmm. um, particularly these days, um, artificial intelligence, um, big data, machine learning. Uh, oh. I guess, uh, is the ATA using, making use of those new technologies? Too? Well, it will,
1: when it's back on the air, for sure. Um, hmm. the, uh, the, for us, in, in the SETI project, the, the main difference will be that over all of these decades, we have been asking a computer to find specific patterns in frequency and time. We've said to the computer, tell us if this kind of signal is there. But with uh, neural networks and machine learning, we can now not just search for one particular pattern, but we can ask the machine to tell us if there's anything there that is other than noise. And this is a big um, departure or a big step forward, if you wish, to be able to do this, because you know we made we made our best guess at what an engineered signal would look like, but in fact, we may have missed some other types of signals because we weren't looking for them. And now we can simply say, train up a system with a lot of noise, and then tell it to to uh, alert us if there's something other than noise there.
0: Now, I can see behind you on your your right shoulder one of the telescope arrays there. I mean, that's, there's 42 of those, and they're, they're quite big, aren't they?
1: Well, they're six meters across, yeah. or 20 <laughs> feet, because they didn't do metric in Idaho Falls, Idaho, where we had them made. But, yeah, <laughs> six meters. Sorry. And it's um, and altogether, when you take a, all of the, collecting area of all of the dishes. Uh, It's equivalent to a telescope that's a bit more than 30 meters in
0: diameter. I'm just curious about this. Whenever you're looking in a new field, you collect a lot of data. Um, Is all that data archived? Uh, Is the data that the ATA collected, let's say, in 2010 still available somewhere on the hard disk or something?
1: Actually, Not the data from the ATA, because we put a premium on, um, rather than storing the data and analyzing it later, we put a premium on doing our signal detection in real time, because we found that that was the best way to help us discriminate against radio frequency interference coming from our own technology. Now, other programs, such as the Breakthrough Listen program being operated by Berkeley, they do record their data. And there are um, lots of terabytes of data online that they have made available to the public. But the Allen Telescope Array data, the only data that are available, are the data surrounding signals that we detected. So that we did that we did keep, but the rest of it, no. Nope.
0: And and this is the compromise you have to make in any large um, programme where there's a huge amount of data, and there is literally huge amount of data you collect. There are, of course, other radio telescopes around the world. Um, right now, I mean, historically, I think SETI searches have taken place around the world in different institutions. Right now, are there other... Te- radio telescopes involved in SETI uh, search. And particularly I'm thinking about here in the UK, Jodrell Bank's not very far from where I'm sitting, um, US and Australia, the Square Kilometre Array, but that won't be coming online for a while yet. Um, and eventually when the replacement for Arecibo goes. So what's the global picture for SETI search using radio telescopes?
1: Well, um, the breakthrough, listen, lesson- Uh, team at Berkeley are using telescopes in Green Bank, West Virginia, again, the National Radio Astronomy Observatory, the 100 meter dish there. They're also using um, parks in New South Wales in Australia. Uh, Near to you, right, Jodrell Bank is, um, has signed a memorandum of agreement with Breakthrough, but they haven't, Breakthrough has not yet installed Back end receivers on Jodrell, but they will as well as the Merlin array in the UK. Um, LOFAR stations uh, in Europe are being used for low frequency surveys. The Malura Wide Field Array in Western Australia, again, low frequency s- sky surveys. Uh, so uh, there are a number of telescopes. There's a there's a telescope that's being built in Sardinia in, in Italy that will be doing some seti when it gets completed. And in India, the, uh, the telescope at, uh, oh, I'm on the name, Bangalore, is, has been used. Uh, so, and as well as optical telescopes. Um, the, the thing that we're trying to figure out how to do right now is have some sensitivity for transient signals. Even the Phoenix project, which did the signal processing in near real time, didn't have sensitivity to signals that didn't hang around for on the order of half an hour. If it was just one, hello, how are you? And then the signal went away, we didn't have any way of verifying and validating that signal. And so we want to develop the capability of looking at all the sky all the time so that we can detect any kind of transient signal. And this is beginning first at optical wavelengths rather than in the radio. And we have a couple of projects, one called Panoseti down in UC San Diego and the other called Laser SETI at the SETI Institute that, in fact, will look at all the sky all the time for transient signals, and then when the technology allows, we'll we'll move that into the radio.
0: Hmm. So, if I can ask you about the uh, optical SETI, uh, that's relatively new, and what's the scope? How many observatories? Um, in the U.S. and and, and elsewhere are actively engaged in that kind of search?
1: Um, So Lick Observatory in Mm -hmm. San Jose, California has been involved in optical SETI and in infrared SETI. There's a telescope um, down in Southern California that used to be part of NASA's Deep Space Network, but it's actually been moved outside the fence and is now part of what's called goldstone apple valley um, research telescope and students there are conducting a sky survey with that that 26 meter telescope Uh, let me think there's a there's an amateur optical seti observatory in um in panama there was for many years an optical survey uh, done, built and done by graduate students at uh, telescopes of uh, data from the Keck, the two Keck oh, yeah. telescopes in Hawaii. Uh, recorded data has been reprocessed to look for laser signals. And the data were taken to find exoplanets using a radial velocity technique but those data have been reanalyzed for for SETI. There has been a search that uses archival data from the WISE spacecraft that did an infrared survey of the whole sky. And that was reprocessed looking for the infrared um, leakage or backside temperature from something like a Dyson sphere. Uh, an right. extraterrestrial technology which manages to try and collect all of the uh, energy from its star by building a large megastructure that captures um, that radiation and would have uh, an infrared emission from the backside.
0: It was interesting you saying that um, the data from uh, the one. Um, near Wise Wise program was um, reprocessed. Now this is data collected in space by spacecraft. Have there been any specific um, experiments on board um, spacecraft to look for either optical or radio signals of uh, SETI in nature?
1: The um, in the radio, that spacecraft would have to be well above low earth orbit right because otherwise you're right next to these very loud radio sources Uh, and so you need to be in a high orbit and now uh, things like um the um the voyager mission when it was leaving the solar system it did turn around and look back at earth to try and see if there was any evidence of life on earth and the most uh unambiguous evidence was the ship to shore radio signals um it, it turns out that it where it was looking was not very favorable it was actually looking down n- near the antarctic uh, because of the scheduling of the telescope but carl S- carl sagan led that experiment and they discovered some evidence of the chlorophyll um, edge and the red edge and but really the most unambiguous evidence was our, our radio signals. We're talking about putting telescopes either in orbit or on the surface of the lunar far side because then you'd have the entire moon as a shield. It's uh, it, the lunar far side is the one place that never has the Earth in its sky.
0: Are well, there uh, bearing in mind that uh, just to, just over just under two years ago, um, China uh, did land on the other side of the moon, and they've been operating a, a rover there uh, for quite some time. Uh, I'm guessing that along with the developments huge developments in the private space sector would make that um, SETI search from the other side of the moon a little bit more closer in time? Do you have any, speculate on any timelines as the one that might occur?
1: Yeah, certainly a decade ago, we weren't talking about it. Now we are. Um, The reality is going to be dependent on what infrastructure gets developed. I think that we're not going to build it. Just because of the cost we 're probably not going to build um, a telescope only to do SETI. It will be a more general purpose instrument for um, astronomical research and particularly low frequency research that can 't be done because of our ionosphere from from the earth uh, and and we will find a way to again commensally observe with the science that's going on
0: there? A lot of people also look at the work you do and uh, the SETI Institute and organizations like it do um, as um, of no practical value. Um, so apart from the um, discrimination, if I could call it that, um, you must have difficulty funding SETI programs. So how are how is your SETI program being funded, and what's the history of funding as far as SETI search is, con- is concerned?
1: Well, the funding has been a roller coaster. Right? Um, it started out within the life sciences at NASA as a NASA project that was terminated in um, 1993 by Senator Bryan. Um, and since 93, we've been raising the funds privately to uh to keep this going at the seti institute we are now talking with nasa again about the fact that looking for techno signatures should be as much as a part of their astrobiology program as looking for biosignatures that it's um perfectly logically consistent and and we're beginning perhaps to make some inroads there there have been um one or two grants that have been given by by NASA. And so perhaps we're gonna be looking at the coming era of public-private partnerships. And of course, the Breakthrough Listen has been funded by Yuri Milner with a promise of $100 million over 10 years. And they're about halfway through that, building these wonderful instruments, backend instruments for recording the data. Uh, so, ideally, a public-private partnership is, is what you want. But if you can't get it, we'll take the private. Thank you.
0: And uh, I, I know, although the Planetary Society and the SETI Institute are based in the U.S., uh, these are open to uh, anybody around the world to join and, and support these kinds of activities.
1: Certainly. I mean, we have in astronomy, particularly radio astronomy, we have long, long had what we call an open skies policy, which is that an instrument may be built by one nation or another, but um, it's the best science that is proposed that's going to get time on the telescope and that those proposals can come from anywhere. I put together um a list of all of the different searches at radio and optical and archival searches in a in a data sheet called technosearch.seti.org. org. And so the um each each search has a, a reference to the paper and it tries to say what was done, what frequencies, and what were the targets that were looked at, etc. And so um, if anybody has done a search that hasn't shown that has been published and it hasn't shown up in there, they should uh, follow the directions to submit the information so that we can include it.
0: There have been a few experiments conducted where there have been transmissions from the Earth, haven't there?
1: There have been there have been a few, and that's actually a current controversy within the SETI community about whether we should be transmitting and not just listening. Um, there are some people who are are very upset and say, you know, don't don't transmit, don't tell them we're here; they're just going to come and eat us up. Kind of fears. Others that say, look, that horse is already out of the barn. We've been leaking. Yeah transmissions for decades. And so that's very much a, a active area of discussion within the community. And the thing that I'm struck by is that if you want to transmit, it makes no sense just to transmit for a little while and stop. If you're going to transmit, you need to continue transmitting forever or 10,000 years. Because if you transmit for five minutes, your signal is going to go past your target and it will be available for five minutes and never again, right? So you need to be transmitting continuously so that when an emerging technology out there develops technology to to scan its skies, the signal will be there for them to find, And I just don't think that we're grown up enough as a technological civilization to take on that long-term transmission project. So I think that we should listen for now. And when we are wise enough and stable enough to take on a continuous transmission project, then we should do it.
0: Dr. Jill Tata. It's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you very much indeed for your time.
1: Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me.